Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is bassist, Bollywood composer, and NASA aerospace engineer, Mike Paul Hughes. First of all, what's the most stressful job in the music business? Well, there's a lot of them, <laughs> and we're all under stress from one point to another, but apparently there's one job that's worse than all the others, and you probably wouldn't guess it. It's being a concert promoter. Yeah, there's a ticket and event company called Skittle in the UK that did a survey, and they found out that on that side of the business, actually, 82% of people were working under continuous levels of stress. 67% report some sort of anxiety, and 42% actually struggle with depression. Boy, that's bad. 10% feel that they have OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder, as a result of their work in the business. That's pretty amazing. When we get to promoters, we find out that 65% of them have what they feel is unimaginable levels of pressure. 47% of promoters feel they have a constant feel of anxiety and sadness. 38% feel it's having a negative effect on families and friends. 37% report financial problems. 45% feel that they're bothered by no regular income. 42% say lack of support. Boy, that's a tough job, and it's something that nobody would expect. Usually when you think of a promoter, you think of someone that's fairly powerful, that's able to say yes and no to gigs, to bands, and that in itself can actually be stressful, I would imagine. But it looks like this is not a good job to be in. And really being in the supply side of the concert, the live event music business, is not something that's a lot of fun for most people. So most of us that are listening to this are studio people, and we have our own levels of stress, but apparently it's never as bad as on the live side, especially if you're a promoter. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, is now available and was the number one bestseller on the Amazon Music Business Books chart. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from interviews from this podcast. You'll find it on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. Now here's something interesting. There have been a number of industry pundits that on the musical instrument side of things that have been predicting that there was going to be a used guitar wave and it was really going to hurt new guitar sales. In fact, some of those predictions are coming true. One of the problems with electric guitars, if you can call it a problem, is the fact that they're made so well. There's no built-in obsolescence whatsoever. They have exceptional durability, especially if it's a well-made instrument. And everyone's been finding that 10-year-old models only discount for 10 or 20% off of new models. Indeed, we're finding that instruments that are decades old are holding their value and even better. Now, a big factor in used guitar sales is online. And it used to be that if you wanted to buy a used guitar, you were kind of at the mercy of whatever your local dealer had, whatever your local music store had in stock. 
if there wasn't much there to pick from, chances are you weren't going to buy something that was used. If you're in a major market, New York, LA, Nashville, of course, there are more opportunities for this to happen. But if you're anywhere else, you probably weren't buying a used instrument. Now, that being said, the online world has changed all that completely. Now we find that Reverb.com lists 150,000 different guitars. And eBay, 190,000. In fact, Reverb tracks about $400 million worth of guitars just this year alone. Now, you'd think retailers would be hurt by this, but in fact, they're not. Retailers are actually using Reverb and eBay to sell their used instruments as well, and that's up to 20% of their business. Okay, all this being said, it paints a very dire picture for new guitars, right? And not so fast. It turns out that new guitar sales are up 8.8% to about 2.63 million. And that was for last year. And they're thinking that this year it's going to be even higher. So what this is showing us is guitar sales are strong, whether new or used. That's really good for the musical instrument business. It's good for online retailers. It's good for mom and pop music stores. Good for everybody. My guest this week is Mike Paul Hughes, who spends his day as a NASA aerospace engineer working on some of the most advanced space projects the world has ever seen. After work, though, he becomes a bassist, producer, and even a composer for a number of Bollywood films. He also has one of the most inspirational stories of overcoming tremendous obstacles to reach dream goal that I've ever heard. In the interview, Mike tells us that story, but also describes his Bollywood work and a number of things that people aren't aware of when it comes to space travel and even landing a human on Mars. We spoke via Skype from a studio just outside of Los Angeles. You have one of the best backstories of anybody I know. And I use your example often to inspire people because it is an inspirational story. So could you firsthand tell us what happened? Yeah, okay. Um, well, thanks for the lead, and I, I appreciate that very much. You're, you're uh, remembering that. <clears throat> so uh, in the fall of 80, 1985, my life kind of fell apart. I, I was in a band. I was playing bass in a rock band in Philadelphia. And I had a job and a girlfriend. And uh, it all kind of fell apart. Uh, I got fired from my job. My band broke up. My girlfriend dumped me and my car died all in the period of a couple of weeks and kind of put me into a depression. And uh, just before uh, the holidays of 1985, uh, I got another job in a print shop, but I, I kind of hated it. And then uh, a month later, the Challenger exploded and shocked me out of that life. And I decided to become an aerospace engineer. So I put down the, the drugs, the alcohol, the bass guitar, the party life, and went after aerospace engineering and um, overcame pretty significant academic odds. I wasn't in a very good position to excel academically because my high school grades had not been that good and my SAT scores were not that good. And uh, the, the counselor note, noted it and, and said that I had a less than a 1% chance of, of graduating with honors uh, in that high uh, dean's list category. And, and well, to make a long story short, that's what I went and did. Um, so it's been an interesting ride since then. I've been working on NASA science missions ever since. 
for 27 years now, and I'm playing music again. <laughs> so I guess I got it all. Well, I want to get to the music in a big way in a second, but let's just talk about your position at NASA. What exactly are you doing now? Well, I'm working on a couple of projects. I'm a systems engineer, and uh, a lot of systems engineering is, is a lot of bringing people together. It's identifying a problem that's cross-cutting and bringing the people into the room to solve that problem. And I'm working on multiple projects doing this type of role. Uh, the Europa Clipper project, which is uh, going to send a spacecraft to uh, do fast flybys of the second moon of Jupiter, uh, which is believed to have a liquid water ocean believe, beneath the ice. Uh, so that's the moon Europa, and uh, that mission's going to launch in 21. And then I'm also working formulation, which is uh, the, the, a mission that's far off, 10 years, Potentially, it's a, it's a proposal, and that's called, called Project Starshade. And the idea there is to, uh, it's an astrophysics mission. It's looking for exoplanets. And the idea is to place a spacecraft in front of a star that you believe has exoplanets, and then use a space telescope, much more powerful than Hubble, to image that star. But you block the starlight, so now you're, you can see the light from the planets. And that's a, that's a way of direct imaging the planets, actually picking up photons from the planets. Uh, so that one, and then I'm working on another one, which is a collaboration with the Indian Space Agency, uh, which is a Earth science mission to fly a, a very large synthetic aperture radar uh, to look for subtle changes in the Earth's crust, uh, say for an earthquake or you know landslides, these kind of things you can measure. Uh, very small changes, uh, including, you know, climate change. You know, when the ice sheets melt, the SNISAR mission be able to measure that too. So I'm pretty, I'm spread out right now. Going back a little bit, how does one get a gig at NASA? Well, it's just like any other large corporation in one way, and that it has a website, a careers website, and and you go in and you apply, and you put up your resume and. There's various positions that you can apply for, and they have uh, qualifications that are expected. And uh, that's where the challenge comes in, because the qualifications can be you know, multiple years with a master's degree in engineering. So I guess the, the probably if, if somebody out there is listening and wants to get a gig at NASA, uh, the best way to do it is to get a degree, a, a mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, or aerospace engineering. And if you do that, then you'll be in demand in a lot of places besides NASA. But for you, it was always NASA, though. You, you always, because of Challenger, you had an affinity for space and everything to do with aerospace, right? Yeah, well, I was a, a kid of Star Trek. I grew up in the 70s when the Star Trek reruns were on. So I was inspired, you know, by the culture, uh, but I was on a path to really be working in a print shop for maybe the next 20 years if it weren't for the challenger that set me on a different course. And it just came at a, a point in my life where I, I needed an outside influence to kind of shock me to that. And I guess it was just a big enough dream that I, I kind of I went all in. So, yeah, when I went in, I didn't show up and say, hmm, what's going to be my major? You know, maybe I'll check out you know, electrical engineering, or maybe I'll do 
you know, arts and sciences, you know, so humanities or something. No, I, I was aerospace from day one, and I had to plow through a lot of obstacles to, to realize that. You were noted for your participation and leadership in Deep Impact. And I just find that amazing that you could aim a spacecraft at a comet and actually hit it, which is pretty amazing. How long did that take? Deep Impact? Yeah. The mission? Yeah. Um, it started as an idea in the late 90s, right around the time the movie Deep Impact was being made, you know, 10 miles away in Hollywood. And I've asked the question throughout NASA, was this influenced by Deep Impact, the movie? And I could never find a connection. Mm. It seems to be that uh, that phrase was used in two different places. And uh, we made a mission out of it and they made a movie out of it. Uh, but it was in the late 90s that it was proposed. But we really didn't hit uh, the, um, what we call flight project status when you hit phase A until the year 2000, uh, 2001. And then it was four years before we could launch. So these missions typically are about four years, four to six years for the big ones. The big one might be six. Big flagships will take longer. They have a long proposal tail where the scientists will go and have this idea, we're going to hit a comet, we're going to, and they try different ways of doing it, and they'll propose it on paper multiple times to NASA until it may get picked up. It's not unlike what happens in the movie business with scripts. Uh, so there's proposals that are floating around, and they say, ah, that's a good idea, let's resubmit that proposal, we'll give it a different name, we'll respin it, we'll have a different partner, and that's what happened, and they got selected. Uh, we were partnered with Ball Aerospace. They were great. It was a hard mission. How did you get selected to be on that? Or is that something that, that you apply for? Is it something that someone decides that you should be working on? How does that work? Well, I had been the, the guidance, navigation, and control lead on the Terra spacecraft, which was a big flagship Earth orbiting spacecraft. And I worked on that for like eight years. So... I had uh, I had GNC guidance, navigation, and control chops, and in the fall of two thousand one, after the twin towers had been attacked, the mission that I, I was working on, um, I guess through national reprioritization, right around that time, there were major changes in NASA, and I was working on the Europa Orbiter project, which got canceled and recast into another proposal spin, which turns out I'm working on its final come out of that. Uh, the Europa Clipper project is the final come out of that. So anyway, they needed the uh, Deep Impact uh, project was a, a partnership with a, an external partner, uh, Ball Aerospace, and they needed somebody to work that. It was not an internal mission like the Mars project. The, the Mars rovers were ramping up right around that time. And uh, there was a lot of demand and I just happened to be, you know, right place at the right time. And I asked the right questions in the interviews. What happened, I think. I asked, well, the manager called me in. And he's a famous guy. I don't want to give his name, but he's a famous guy. And he doesn't know me yet. And this is my first interview. And he said, so you're going to hit a comet with a spacecraft? And how big is the comet? And how fast are we going to be going? And, you know, after answering all these questions, I was, you know, about five kilometers across, we're going 10 kilometers per second. You mean we're going to pass it in a half a second? So what's the attitude knowledge accuracy? 
And she's like, well, you know, gives me a really small number. And I'm like, whoa, you sure you're going to meet that? <laughs> and I think I got the job with that that statement because I was, are you sure you're going to do that? Because <laughs> he had me at that point. And it, it turned out that that mission really depended on the attitude knowledge, which is a, di- a different, longer story. Well, okay. Now, you're working for NASA. You're an aerospace engineer. And suddenly, you become a Bollywood composer. How did that come about? It, it wasn't so suddenly as it was I had been producing music on my computer in those years, 2007, 2008. And in my basement by myself, and uh, I would play it for people, and they'd say, "Oh, that sounds like film music, maybe from a not so good film, <laughs> you know." But because uh, I didn't know what I was doing quite yet, and uh, then I got your book, uh, the Mixing Engineer's Handbook, and after applying some of the simple techniques in there, not to give you a plug, but it was really laid out very well for me. At the time that I was reading it, it was very easy to read, and it helped me adapt to the software, and I produced better music, and I started uh, approaching people on Facebook, on social media, you know, friending people that were in the, in the film industry. And as I friended people in L.A. and Hollywood, I wasn't really getting in the door, uh, but in Bollywood, they seemed to be very open to the idea of having an American composer on, the, on their their film so there were indie films that were being produced and they were like sure you know we'd love to have a track and they started giving me specs for various tracks so yeah i've done uh, i think three bollywood indie films that's pretty awesome (laughs) it's just reaching out to people and trying to make make connections and, and people um people were receptive it was really kind of fun learned a lot well maybe the American composers don't reach out that often, I would think. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a some kind of a cultural bias or something, some kind of a you know international, you know, American privilege or a white privilege or some kind of thing that gave me an edge with the Bollywood people. But I loved Indian music. I mean, I think it was really probably just genuine that I was looking for uh, collaborations with Indian artists at the time, and I had done a couple of international collaborations on my music, and uh, had great results. Honestly, I I loved it, and there were uh, there were great tracks that people had sent me, and that I would mix in, and you know, you iterate, and I never met this person, but yet we produced this piece of art. So yeah, it's kind of fun. You know, what was interesting for a little bit, a couple of years ago, there was a Bollywood radio station. It was an AM station that suddenly appeared. I think what happened was there was a sports station I was listening to, and then one day you turn it on and it's Bollywood, Bollywood music. And it was fantastic. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. There was just something that was different and cool and new as compared to what at least I was used to listening to. And it lasted for about six months, and then just like it appeared, it disappeared, and one day it was a Spanish station again, <laughs> Spanish mariachi music. Obviously, they couldn't get the advertising they needed to keep it going, but it was a shame because I loved it. I wish there'd be another one like that, actually. Yeah, the, the Bollywood music, the hit stuff, is, is really a, a fusion, like all music is, but it's a fusion of classical uh, classical Indian Hindi and 
you know, traditional American or British, you know, rock sounds and pop sounds. And I, I love that fusion. I love the violins and the way they uh, would use the violins as hooks where it's a totally different use for the American. It would be fiddle and the Indians, uh, they, they really can spin that violin. Well, the scale too is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. The new sc- the scales and uh, the vocals and the vocalists are able to do these micro flutters with the voice. They're, uh, the the female vocalists uh, are just amazing artists. They are like the closest to birds that humans have ever been, mm. in my opinion. So I, I really love them. Okay, so you have this gig with NASA, but you can't take the musician out of the guy. You know, that's kind of the way it works. You start a musician, you stay that way. doesn't matter what else you're doing. Now I'm looking at you in your studio and it's it's very cool. I know you're producing music, and you've gone back to playing as well. Tell me about your music. Okay, so I play in a band called King Soul and the Vibes. It's a Los Angeles-based reggae, Latin, ska, funk, rock band, and uh, it's um, it's some of the greatest music and fun that I've had in uh, 30 years these guys are very solid musicians and professionals and every one of them has a superpower that they bring to the project that enables the project to stay afloat you know where i bring of course recording and live sound other members of the band take care of merchandise and uploading to all the websites when you make a release you have uh, multiple platforms, Spotify, our music is on Amazon and Bandcamp. It's everywhere you can download music, you'll find King Soul and the Vibes. I'd say the music is a, a fusion between the, the sounds of Bob Marley, War, and Santana. So the sound is decidedly 20th century. Uh, we're not trying to make records that sound like the, the great artists of today, like Taylor Swift or anything. We're not producing like that. We're producing songs that are played, um, usually tracked in a single take. We may do multiple takes, but it's one take that we lay the entire, it's like tape. So we have a, a very old style of, of playing. That's because we play the song so much, we rehearse so much, we are very solid in the performance that we can do it you know, four or five, six times until every player in the band says, yeah, I got a solid take. So yeah, we're, um, we're an old, an old school style reggae, ska, funk, Latin. Let's go there for a second. Your background is in rock. Now you're playing, I know it's a catch all, but let's just say reggae, which is a completely different feel. How difficult was it for you to capture that feel? Because the downbeat is different. Everything is kind of different. How difficult was it for you? I guess I've played in mostly rock bands in my musical life, but I've always loved reggae. And when I first started playing, the police were hit. And I could hear the bass lines on the police records. They were simple parts that a beginning bass player could play. And they were doing that, you know, uh, one drop, you know, that's the way Sting was playing. So I was learning 
reggae from really the British artist, Elvis Costello, mm. uh, watching the detectives. Sat on the edge of my bed and played watching the detectives until my mom yelled up the stairs, turn that down. Yeah, so I I had played that style, learning it from the you know second wave ska, the British uh, new wave, and uh, the bands that played it. There were many bands that played uh, that style, the reggae ska, uh, reggae ska in the eighties. Like the Hooters had a bunch of hits, mm-hmm. and I think at least one of them, All You Zombies, was a was a big hit. They were from Philadelphia, yeah, if you remember. Uh, so it was always there. It was almost a challenge when I first show up at, at rehearsal, my first rehearsal with King Soul, at the audition, actually. I had sent them a video. They, they demanded video because they're a pretty high-level band, and they figured if you can audition for them, then you better be, we want to see you and we want to hear you. And I sent them a music video that, I, that was a pretty high-level production that I had done for Red Bull uh, several years back, and it was a rock piece. And uh, I felt like I, I was having to convince them that I can do the ska reggae reggae Latin style. Like, hey, man, I grew up on war. Trust me, I can do this. You know, I got this feel because it really is feel. It's uh, a lot of it is is you're playing one note uh, per beat, but it's on a it's syncopated. Yeah, it'll be uh, on the end or something. And and you got to be able to feel that over and over and over again. And and the whole thing will collapse if you miss it once. So it's it's feel. Let's go to Red Bull for a second. How did that come about? So, um, 2015, I was uh, called by uh, our mutual friend Richard Gibbs to go out to the woodshed, that fabulous studio in Malibu, uh, to attend an event with Red Bull. And I didn't know what it was about, but it, they were looking for like creative people, uh, people with unique sort of skills and talents and multi-talented people and because i guess i you know engineering it's space stuff you know i'm an easy hook for that and uh, so i went out and they invited me to be a producer for an art project that they would sponsor and i would enter in a contract with them and they would pay me um a stipend a grant to go produce an art project and i had to write a proposal so well we do this a lot in airspace and i wrote a proposal for a music video called when the stars align that would feature a, a song by greg gregory markel and umi kapila when it ultimately got produced and uh, I, produ- I i had another one which was a rock and roll fashion show which they didn't select but i still want to do that where you have a bunch of rock bands playing and then you have fashion models doing some lines of clothing and then you have rock bands play so they didn't want that one they, they wanted the when the stars align music video so I had a small amount of money that I could. I had a small amount of money that I could go hire Los Angeles session players and hire you know great producer. Or I'm, I'm sorry, a, a mix engineer, recording engineer, um, all the people I needed. I had uh, the the guys from Filter, Uni Capilla, the guitar player from Filter, and Chris Reeve, the drummer from Filter, played on the track. Uh, Gregory Markell is the lead singer. And I played bass, and uh, yeah, we had a ten-piece orchestra that Richard Gibbs had done the orchestrating for, and it was pretty fabulous. Did you record it at his place? Yes, we recorded it at the woodshed. It took two days, a weekend in September of 2015. 
last weekend. And by rare coincidence, there was a lunar eclipse. So at the end of the second session, it was this magical moment where we had finished everything on time, which we didn't believe we would when we first started because, you know, all these strings and orchestra and everybody and getting levels and everything. But we finished on time and then we had a meal and here comes the moon and it's it's an eclipse and somebody said, look, the stars aligned. <laughs> and I was like, I even forgot. I'm, I'm the space guy. And I had heard that there's going to be a lunar eclipse that night, but I had forgotten because I was so caught up with the production because uh, I was producing the event. I was like telling everybody to show up. I was the one booking the catering. I was the one, you know, talking to the sound engineer and, uh, you know, video was being recorded and we had, you know, multiple directors and cameras and camera angles. And it was like a lot. So I forgot there was a lunar eclipse, some space guy. Uh, I had something somewhat similar. One of the best records I ever worked on, uh, Once in a Blue Moon by Jerry Groom with uh, Mick Taylor. And it was in a brand new studio. It didn't even have a multi-track yet. So we're recording live to two-track, live to dat, really. But with great players, and it was, you know, real authentic blues, authentic players, and, and it was just great. But we walked outside during a break and looked up, and it was a blue moon. And that became the name of the record. And there was something magic in the whole thing because, again, it was all done live, live in the studio, but there was just magic. And you kind of know when you capture it. It doesn't happen that often. So when it does, you, you know, there's something really special in the air. So, like I say, something similar happened to me. I wish it would happen again, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Once in a blue moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. All right, um, let's go back to King Saul for a second. How often are you gigging? Um, coming up through the spring into the summer, it was about once a week. And sometimes that would be in every two weeks, there'd be two gigs. So it seemed pretty busy because we're all... Um, working for a living, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a rocket scientist working at NASA, so I can't do this every single night, every single day. Um, we rehearse three nights a week and we were playing on the weekends. So we were playing about three, three nights a week for three hours sometimes, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a lot. My chops have come back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. It's funny because a couple of years ago I had a friend that insisted I come down to Florida and play in a festival with them. Small festival, but it was a festival nonetheless. And I practiced for, I, I tried to get out of it and he wasn't having it. So I practiced for like three months in advance, but I wasn't doing it with people. I was doing it to tracks at home, which as you know, that's not the same thing. It's not like playing with real people. And then when I went down, I didn't have my gear either. So I was using borrowed gear, which again is not a good thing. And it was one of those things where they videotaped it and I said, please, please, please don't ever show this to anybody. Don't put it in YouTube. Let it just stay as a memory. It wasn't one of my <laughs> finer, finer moments. Let's put it like that. <laughs> but it goes to show you that you have to play a lot and you have to play with people in order to have chops and continue to, to keep them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, when I first started playing with these guys in the first week, I was, I think, around the third rehearsal. We were playing three hours a night. My my right hand swelled up Yeah. at the end. And I had never had that before because it was just that much energy. And uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I got it. 
it's it's a lot of just muscle memory and strength, just physical strength. It's like being an athlete. Yeah. You know, if you can run a quarter mile without holding your side, well, you get to be after one after a mile, two, three miles, you're an athlete at some point. Well, that's some point you're a musician. You know, if you yeah. can do it, you can play three hours without losing a beat, calluses and all that. It's yeah. Labor. All right, I have two more questions for you. First one is. What do people not know? Is there something that's common knowledge within NASA, but the average person doesn't know or realize what's going on? That is the best question I have ever been asked. I've done, I don't know, a dozen of these type of interviews, but I've never been asked that question. Here's what people are bad at. They have a gigantic blind spot for things they can't, see <laughs> and it may seem so obvious but they're blind for acoustics they have no most people are just lost for acoustics they don't know what how to think about it they don't know what it is it's like sounds crappy in here i can't hear the vocals what's this they're lost right for me it's a fluid dynamics problem i can understand what's going on and i can use that to make it sound better another thing you can't see radiation general public is very confused about radiation they're scared to death of Fukushima, but they want to fly to Mars with Elon Musk. It's just nuts. There's more radiation at Mars than there is at Fukushima. And there's no takeout at Mars. There's no food on Mars. The soil has formaldehyde in it. It's not even soil because there's been no bugs that have been drilling around in it to turn it to soil. Uh, the idea of Mars, living on Mars, that th that's a big uh, thing that in the population that the general population doesn't quite get. Uh, what else can't you see that people are just uh, completely uh, blind to? Climate change, carbon dioxide. You can't see carbon dioxide. It's invisible. You can't see it piling up in the atmosphere. You have to turn the atmosphere into a spectral filter by putting it in your mind through a Fourier transform. You have to look at it in terms of frequency in order to be able to even see the way the carbon dioxide does it. Most people can't make that leap, mm. right? They can't think in terms of frequency and wavelength and like, oh, light's here and radio's there. So that's the things you can't see, the things that are invisible, carbon dioxide, acoustics, radiation, just to name a few. Very cool. Great question. All right, last question for you. And this should be interesting. I ask this of everybody. But most people that I have in this podcast have been independent contractors forever. They are independent contractors. Very few of them actually work a gig in, or work for a corporation or anything like that. So I think your answer is going to be different. What is the best piece of business advice that you've ever received from somebody or maybe you've learned along the way? Business advice in terms of... Um for music business or for any business? Any business. Um, any business, I think you have to show up and be respectable in that business and have the name and the nameplate and you show up on time and if there's a uniform, you wear the uniform and you if if you interact with the customer, you do it with a smile and you have things written down. And that's uh, just general professionalism that you kind of learn if 
you know, engineers have to do that. I guess a lot of people do. It's for every business, right? Yeah. Um, so if you're, you know, musicians or painters, you know, and you got a van, are you going to show up with four painters? You know, you're going to look like you're ready to paint. You're going to be on time. You're going to do the job. You're going to be off the site when you say you're going to be. Uh, same thing with musicians. You know, you show up, you play on time, you don't play too loud, you're responsive to the customer. Yeah, so all these things, you know, you apply it to music or you apply it to any business, rocket science even. You know, if it's the same thing. If you're going to pitch to NASA, you go to NASA headquarters, you're going to show up on time, you're going to have a good show, you're going to talk, have all your research done, you're going to be wearing, you know, your uniform, you're going to have ties on. You know, you're going to be a professional, right? So that's, I think, professionalism is probably the best, best advice ever. You can find out more about Mike at facebook.com forward slash Mike Paul Use. It's all one word, Mike, M-I-K-E, Paul, P-A-U-L, Use, H-U-G-S-E-S, Mike Paul Use. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it in iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and now Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.